The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. I've often reflected upon the truth that what happened to Mary physically happens to the believer spiritually. We must be born again. Christ must be formed in us. The soul that has been transformed by the message of Christmas that Christ came into the world to save sinners turns us from worshiping self and serving self to magnify the Lord, to live in such a way to worship, know, and serve Him. To be gathered tonight to celebrate the birth of Christ, may we gain insight from this beautiful song found in Luke 1, expired and offered by Mary, the soon-to-be mother, a soul transformed to magnify the Lord. Listen as I read. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has set, sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, I indeed this evening would ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1962, Don and Carol Richardson and their newborn son, Stephen, landed among the tropical jungles of New Guinea, there to dwell among the tribes of the Stone Age Sawi people, to bring the message of Christ to help turn a people away from worshiping spirits to worship the true and living God. This was a dangerous missionary assignment among headhunters who were known for cannibalism and treachery. However, the Richardsons were warmly received by the Salwis, who had already witnessed the wonders of the white man with his miraculous cutting and building tools, the medical and healing technologies that they possessed. They were so eager for the Richardsons to live with them that three enemy tribes of the Salwis came to live within close quarters near their adopted 
missionary family. Don got busy building a treehouse home for his family and learning the Sawi language. And as Don began to delve into the beliefs and customs and the superstitions of the Sawi people, he came to realize that their highest virtue was de- deception, to commit treachery against one's enemy. All of this people's hero stories were misdeed stories, accounts of their ancestors inviting an enemy into friendship, only to turn on him with cannibalistic lust when he least expected it. In fact, when Don was able to share with them the gospel stories of Jesus, it was Judas who stood out to be the hero in the minds of the Sawi men. Don became at a, at a loss with how to, how to communicate the gospel to such a backwards culture with upside-down values. But then he faced a more immediate problem. These enemy tribes living in close quarters gave rise to quarrels and fights and even battles, even putting the Richardson family at risk. Don met with the tribal leaders to confront this issue. Their presence, he explained to them that the presence of his family only raised the prospect of greater hostility and bloodshed. These tribal leaders must find a way to make peace, or his family would have to leave. Well, this mandate forced the tribal leaders to dig into the lore of their ancestors, and they decided to exercise the practice of the peace child, where a leading man from each tribe would exchange a newborn son to the enemy tribe, and each tribe would raise that newborn son as its own. Even the men of the tribes would exchange names to become one new tribe. In fact, the adoptive father would be the one who would have responsibility for advocating peace whenever a conflict would rise to remind the warring tribes that they were now one people. Don Richardson finally had the redemptive analogy he needed to explain the gospel to these primitive peoples. Jesus was God's peace child, sent to live and dwell among his enemies in order to secure lasting peace. God sent his son on a dangerous rescue mission to live among an enemy people. And Mary's response to the message of the angel Gabriel models the soul that magnifies the Lord, the one who has given us his most precious gift, Like the mother of our Lord, the scripture calls us to worship, know, and serve the living God. The God who sees us, serves us, and sends us. Mary's hymn of praise actually follows the format of a Thanksgiving psalm. You'll notice that it resembles the song of Hannah, the barren woman who praises God for giving her the gift of Samuel the prophet. In this hymn, Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. The Greek verb megaluvo means to make great, to exult, to make much of. We use magnifying glasses to make small things appear larger. We magnify people and things to give them the recognition they deserve. 
the Republicans want to magnify their recent tax cut bill. NFL fans like to magnify their favorite team. Proud grandparents magnify their precious grandchildren. People often magnify their annual milestones with their annual Christmas letter. They hear Mary magnifies the Lord, joining with the chorus of Scripture to make his name great on earth, to spread his fame to the corners of the globe that all peoples might see the beauty and the glory of God to worship, know, and serve him. Mary also rejoices, she says, in God my Savior. Mary was not sinless. She is not a co-redeemer, as some Christians believe. She was very aware of her own sin and need of a Savior, like every other fallen creature made in God's image. So why does Mary magnify the Lord? Why does she rejoice in God, her Savior? She says, because he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. God sees her. God is not aloof. He is not dismissive or out to lunch. There were times in Israel's history where God's people felt forgotten, disregarded, abandoned by their God, For many generations, they were slaves in Egypt. Does God still remember the promise he gave to our forefather Abraham? Then the Lord called to Moses out of the burning bush, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. God is not blind. God is not deaf to the cries of his people. God sees, hears and knows the plight of his people in affliction. With a mighty arm, he toppled the false gods of Egypt and brought his people out with great triumph. Mary here recognizes the same truth of another young expectant mother long ago, Hagar, the maidservant of Sarah, who was cast out into the wild. Fearful and uncertain about her future, God sent an angel to comfort her to reassure her, to let her know that he would watch over her and protect her. And Hagar worships the God who sees me. Isaiah 40, 27-29 expresses the attitude of Israel who felt forgotten by their God. The prophet asks, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Sometimes we feel small, insignificant, of little account. We feel neglected, slighted, overlooked. We wonder where God is. Does he notice me? Does he care for my concerns when I suffer hard things? To such questions, Isaiah responds, Have you not known? Have you not heard The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He is not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. It's easy to feel insignificant, left out, in a world that prizes fame, riches, rare talents, 
Mary reminds us here that God doesn't need to refill his prescription bifocals. He is not too busy to be bothered with our needs. He is the God who sees us, who knows us, and who is worthy of our praise and adoration. Mary goes on to praise God because all future generations will call her blessed. And once again, this is not grounds for Mariolatry. She is not a saint through whom we must seek access to the Son and the Father. She is not the mother of God with any kind of divine stature. Rather, it's through her that God fulfills his promise to Adam and Eve, that she would bear the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Her son was her Lord and Savior, just as he is ours. Mary's Magnificat goes on to extol the qualities of the God that we worship. In verses 49 to 53, Mary, the theologian, invites us to know this God who serves us. He is mighty God, the one who overthrew the Egyptians, defended Jerusalem against the marauding hordes of the Assyrian army, who led David to defeat Goliath and scatter Israel's enemies. He is the holy God who let Moses alone step onto his holy mountain, who established the curtain barrier to warden off the holy of holies, who required the blood of animals to atone for the sins of God's people. He is also the merciful God who forgives sinners, who cares for the poor and the needy. In verses 51 to 53, we see this theme of Scripture in Enforce that God opposes the proud, that gives grace to the humble. In this passage, it gives some special attention to the theme that, that God comes to aid the poor, but frustrates the schemes of the rich. Now, the Bible does not endorse class warfare or suppose that all poor are righteous and that the rich are merely wicked. One's status before God does not depend upon one's wealth or worldly accomplishments. Rather, as verse 50 tells us, God's mercy is for those who fear him. There are many rich people who do not fear God, whose riches are a snare as they foolishly trust in them, but they will not rescue them on the day of God's wrath. And yet God's word shows us other rich who were righteous, men like Job and Joseph who donated his tomb for Jesus' burial. There are also many poor who fear the Lord, just as there are the poor who are wicked. Mary is not pitting social classes against one another, establishing any group of people as more righteous than others, but rather affirming scripture where it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The knowledge of salvation is to understand that God is mighty, holy, and merciful, and that he has met our greatest need in the one who was born to Mary. Jesus taught with such great authority that he left his enemies dumbfounded. He performed the great wonders of God, healing the crippled both in body and mind. The Lord Jesus lived consistently with a zeal for God 
leaving a righteous and holy track record, that he would stand trial without guilt. With profound empathy, the Lord showed mercy, even forgiving those who laid stripes across his back, drove nails into his emaciated body. At the cross, we see God's holiness satisfied and his mercy on display for all peoples. Through the resurrection, God's mighty power is demonstrated, putting to death sin and death forever. The Sawi people thought that the only way to resolve conflict was through warfare and treachery. They had no concept of a mighty God who was both holy and merciful. They were idolaters who worshipped spirits that demanded honor and punished them with impunity. The idea of forgiving one's enemy was as foreign to them as eating another person's flesh is an abomination to us. The Sowies served vindictive and vengeful gods, and thus they were cruel and vindictive towards anybody who crossed them. And yet their ancestors had eternity in their hearts, longing for the one to come and teach them, to show them the way of lasting peace. As the Sowie people began to embrace Christ as God's peace child, the men who had formerly abused and tortured their wives, treating them as mere subhuman slaves, began to acknowledge their wives' rights as cherishable companions. Monogamy replaced polygamy. Women who were once known to indulge moodiness, screaming tirades and abusive speech were now demonstrated a compelling newness and warmth of personality. Children were no longer primed for war. Strangers and enemies could now accept invitations to a feast without fear of retribution. The Sawi dream for peace was being fulfilled. Richardson's arrival fulfilled this dream as they introduced to this lost and needy people to a God that does not demand more servitude or leave us in dread of his great wrath and displeasure. He is the God who serves, who sent his son not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the one through whom the poor are made rich, who those who fear God gain the knowledge of his salvation. Christmas affirms the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become truly rich towards God. Those who are rich in the ways of the world, which includes practically everybody in this room, who enjoy a standard of living that far exceeds the majority of the rest of the world. We need not feel guilty for our riches, but should feel a deep gratitude and should be moved with generosity to give towards the Lord's work. The one who knows this God should grow with an insatiable desire to make his name known to the spiritually impoverished across our nation 
and around the world. Many peoples who are lost without knowledge, who lack hope for this life or the life to come. We know this God who has come to us. Emmanuel, who brings hope, joy, peace, and true prosperity to the knowledge of his salvation. Lastly, this hymn of Mary exhorts us to serve the God who sends us. The God who serves helped his servant Israel, who was called and intended to manifest his glory among the nations as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He spoke to the patriarchs, promising to Abraham that he would have descendants outnumbering the sands on the seashore and the stars in the heavens. Israel's calling was a difficult yet dignifying calling. Being holy is hard. Resisting temptation and idolatry requires much effort through spiritual discipline and repentance. Often Israel failed and was chastised. Often the church has failed in like manner. But we serve a gracious and merciful God who equips us with his word and spirit. Our God is not like the taskmasters of Egypt who force the people to continue making bricks without giving them any straw. Our God is generous, who gives us everything we need for life and godliness. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And he grants you and I the awesome privilege to bear witness to his mighty and holy name. It is an incredible honor to be sent by God, to be sent in the name and the likeness of Christ to bring light to dark places, to speak truth, to correct error, to return grace when reviled by others, and to make much of our Savior in a world that is all too eager to make much of everything else. The beauty of Christmas is that God came near. Not to demand more of us, not to lay more burdens on our backs, but to give us relief. To offer us hope. To set us free to live the lives he has dreamt for us. As his well-loved sons and daughters. That we might serve with the same joy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of his Father in heaven. For any here tonight who find Christianity something onerous, taxing, burdensome, perhaps even boring, you're worshiping the wrong God. You're missing something vital in your knowledge of the true God. In fact, I would contend you are serving false gods, the gods of self, money, pleasure, people-pleasing, and all manner, the pantheon of false gods in this world. I encourage you to consider what the Spirit is saying to you through the words of Mary, a frightened 14-year-old who accepted her role 
to bring God's Messiah into a hostile world. May Christ meet you in your doubts, your fears, your anger, your anxieties, your disappointments, your disillusionments, your regrets, your inability to forgive other people, and other oppressive matters that weigh you down. May you know Christ and enjoy his everlasting peace. As Don Richardson was communicating to the Sowy people that Jesus was God's peace child, he pointed out to them that their way of resolving conflict by the exchange of a peace child only provided temporary peace. It was only for as long as that child lived. But God's peace child still lives. And he lives to make intercession. He lives to bring peace to his people and to offer eternal life to all those who believe, who will commit themselves to worship, to know and to serve him alone. As the leading men of the Salwis were coming to Christ, the real test came on Christmas Day when they invited other enemy tribes to a feast. Amio, a recent convert, trembled with great emotion as he saw the approach of a sick man being brought to Don for medical treatment. Amio explained that this man had once received a peace child from his father and in his treachery had devoured the baby boy, his own baby brother. Moved by God's spirits, Don grabbed Amio and said, I plead the peace child. Reminding Amio that because Jesus lives, God forgives him. And that he must not take vengeance on his enemy. He must forgive. For Jesus' sake, Praise be to God that the gospel prevailed that day. As Amio put away his anger and bitterness and resentment and embraced the hope and the joy and the peace and the forgiving spirit of Christ, Amio approached this sick man, took him on his own back, and gently led him to the medical house for treatment. The rest of his tribe followed, bringing out Christmas gifts of wild pork and beetle grubs to offer to their guest. The Sowies' enemy neighbors had heard the stories, but now they saw firsthand that this was a new people, transformed by God's peace child. Later that day, a Sowie preacher would bring in the Christmas message from Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given, and he will be called the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have reconciled to us to yourself through the Lord Jesus, the peace child, the one who has come to take away all enmity to end all warfare, to bring reconciliation between the living God and his people whom he created and desires to make new. 
as the family of God to represent the witness of truth, peace, and righteousness before a watching world. We give you glory this night, and may we celebrate with glad hearts as we receive the Christ, the one who is truly the Prince of Peace. Amen.